Hey everyone, really quick before we start the show, friend and popular finance author Nick Majuli has a new investing book out called Just Keep Buying. To support Nick and continue to put good information in the hands of our listeners here, I personally purchased a box of them to give away. To claim your free copy of Nick's book, all you have to do is write an honest written review of this show in the Apple Podcast app. Take a screenshot of your written review and email it to me at podcast at youstaywealthy.com. If you don't have an Apple device, uh, go buy one, write a review, and then return it. I'm kidding, kind of. But really, if you don't have an Apple device, I'll leave it up to you to get creative and just support my goal of helping other retirement savers like you find this show. And hopefully the other podcast apps out there will get their act together one of these days and allow for written reviews. Until then, thank you for your continued support. Let's dive into today's show. Welcome to the Stay Wealthy Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Schulte, and today we are talking about investing. Specifically, I'm joined by data scientist and author, Nick Majuli, and we're talking about three big things. Number one, how to invest in high inflationary environments. Number two, why you shouldn't wait and quote, buy the dip. And number three, an actionable formula that you can use to invest during market drawdowns. So if you're ready to dive into the data today and get answers to some of the biggest investing questions, this episode is for you. For all the links and resources mentioned today, just head over to youstaywealthy.com forward slash 150. I want to start with a a current event. Inflation has been on everybody's minds and March CPI data just came out and reported a eight and a half percent year over year increase. I, I don't think anybody's surprised by that. One estimate I came across said that households are spending an additional $327 per month due to the recent spike in inflation. Before we talk about maybe how inflation might impact your investments or how to think about investing in higher inflationary environments, I would just love for you to share your thoughts on just the recent inflation news. Like, What do you make of the recent inflation reports and inflation in general? Is it concerning to you? Are the news headlines overblown? I'd just like to, to start there. Yeah, so I'm not an expert on macroeconomics, so I'm not going to try and predict whether or oh, is inflation going to continue, is it going to go up more? I don't know. Obviously, a lot of stuff that's happened, you know, recently has been very structural. There's a lot of supply chain issues, you know, that's a lot of the things people are talking about. And it's concerning because we've, you know, most of my life I've lived in a 2% inflation environment, 2 to 3% basically all of my life. And now we're finally seeing real inflation, you know, rear its head. I think I was a little surprised because I thought, you know, when I heard the White House say like, you know, inflation expectations would be extremely elevated, I thought we were seeing 10%. I think that would have shocked people if, if it went from, you know, whatever, 7.5 or whatever the last print was to 10. I think that would have shocked a lot of people. So for me, I mean, inflation is obviously scary. It's like prices keep going up. You're like, what? You know, my Chipotle bowl used to be $12. Now it's $16. What's going on here? You know, and I'm seeing that type of stuff happen. Somehow the New York pizza slice is still a dollar though. So I live in New York City and that has not changed. No one's talking about that. Like that price has not moved in literally probably 20 years. And either the quality is getting worse or I don't know, they're, somehow they're making up for it. So it's a inflation proof business somehow. But yeah, I think in general, like I understand why it's scary. Like it's even for me, it's like, well, you know, price keep going up. Like, is my income going to keep up with this? Is my, are all the other things I'm doing going to match this over time? And, and that's something that's can be very concerning. If you don't have income, right? It's like you're just living off your investments. And unless your investments are going up to match inflation, right? It's even scarier because now like, you know, yields are generally lower than they've ever been. You know, retirees are, you know, rely on income. Yet at the same time, like, you know, prices are going up. They can't go out and just like, oh, I can, I'm just going to, I'm don't worry, I'm going to get that through, you know, my work. Like my income's going to rise with inflation. If prices go up, no big deal. That's how most, you know, younger people can do that. But 
I think the, that's why it's a little bit scarier now than it's been previously. So, you know, with that and thinking about investing and thinking about, you know, making sure your money keeps up with inflation, especially in retirement when you're not in the working world, how do you think about investments and how how do you use data to support some of your approach to investing during these high inflationary environments? Uh, You wrote this recent op-ed for CNBC. One of the titles was high inflation won't really hurt stocks in the long run. So, you know, shifting to bonds, shifting to cash, putting all your money under the mattress is obviously not prudent for somebody who needs their money to keep up with inflation. So in your mind, what should investors do? How should investors be thinking given the current environment? Yeah. So if you actually look at the data going back to you know the seventies, I think the assets that did the best, you know, are relatively the best, right? So I'm, I'm going to preface that, you know, we'll get to that in a second, were, you know, stocks, equities of some sort, you know, whether that's US or national, and then REITs, right? Those are the ones that did the best. People say, oh, gold's an inflation hedge. At some periods, it has been. At other periods, it hasn't been. I think over the long run, I don't think it is, I mean, anymore. So that, like, really, that's where most of that inflation hedge comes from. You know, I think bonds don't really do as well. And when I was writing that op-ed, I was basically saying like, okay, in the short run, it's not good because stock returns usually do pretty poorly relative to their average during periods of high inflation. So for example, when I think the number was like when inflation exceeds 7%, over the next year, U.S. stocks only returned 7.3% compared to 10.3% when inflation is below 7%, right? So when you're in a lower inflation environment or not maybe not as extreme an inflationary environment, stock returns are higher, right? So that you just from that alone, it's like, oh gosh, well, like if I know stock returns aren't going to be as good as they're normally going to be, shouldn't I go into bonds, right? Shouldn't I just like buy more U.S. treasuries? Well, the issue is, you know, when inflation exceeds 7%, like the real return on five-year treasuries is negative. It was negative 2.6% over the next year. So you're like, oh, I'm going to move to treasuries. That's my solution. But you're probably like bonds are probably going to get hit worse than stocks, right? During this inflation run. So that's where you have to really, you know, think about if you're trying to make tactical moves. And I think for a lot of people, you can't make tactical moves. And there's a lot of retirees who are already probably heavier in equities because bonds aren't paying anything. And so like to even be to go back, like you're not only going to, you know, move more into bonds, you're going to probably lose more doing that. So, I mean, really, that's why I say like my my result of like looking at this data is like, there's not much you can do. You just got to kind of wait it out, you know, and hope that stocks still provide some return, you know, over the next period of time. Now, of course, in the short run, in the short run, that's not, not great because remember stocks are underperform relative to the short run during lower inflationary periods, but over longer periods of time. So for example, over a two year period, if you just look at like periods of you know, high inflation, so over 7% versus below 7%, the median return over all those, you know, two rolling two-year periods is nearly identical. It's like 18% over a two-year period, right? That's inflation adjusted. So when you look at it that way, you're like, wow, actually that's, you know, so like over a one-year period, it's going to probably not be great, but over a longer period, the inflationary effects are kind of muted in some way. So at least that's what the, that's what the data shows historically, that the medians are similar. Of course, if we end up in one of these weird scenarios where, we're in an edge case that there's nothing you can do about the median, right? Like you have to live with what you, whatever the the universe gives you, right? But it's just kind of, it's a little comforting to think, hey, you know, yes, these things happen, but it's usually just a short-term phenomenon. And, you know, over time, these things will kind of work themselves out. Yeah, I'm sure that's comforting for some people. You know, when I use the word long-term, I'm talking 10, 20, 30 years when you're referencing the data here, talking long-term, you're just saying, hey, let's just get out from looking at the 12-month data and let's just look at 24-month data and those numbers start to, to pair up nicely. There's not really much of a difference between those high inflationary environments and, and low inflationary environments. Do you know off the top of your head how far that data goes back that you were testing there? So I think, oh, that was going back to like 1926, I believe. Yeah, because I use a, 
yeah, I don't think I'm going to say the data source, but I have a, actually, no, I can probably say it. So we work with DFA a little bit. There's not a plug for them, but I'm saying we use their data. So they have a CPI data and they also have, you know, US stock data. So I can just easily, and then treasury, five-year treasury data. So that's what I use, just adjust it. I said, so every two-year period from 1926 to the present, you adjust for inflation and then you just say, okay, what happens when inflation is high versus low, right? And then compare it. Now, obviously there's a lot more low inflation period, so it is skewed. Their sample size is smaller, but the data is what it is, so. So in case anybody missed that, I'll I'll just read from your op-ed. It says the median inflation adjusted return of U.S. stocks over the two years following periods of high inflation to high inflation over 7% was nearly identical to the two-year return following periods of lower inflation. You referenced 18.5% versus 18.7% respectively. And you concluded by saying this suggests that investors with a slightly longer time horizon don't need to worry about inflation's impact on their portfolio. And again, you know, when I talk about long-term, I'm saying 30 years. And even those who are retired today, we're looking at a 30-year time period that they're going to be investing. So you know, two years, 30 years, these are certainly longer-term time periods than what's happening tomorrow or next month. Yeah. And I think the one thing you can do as a retiree is like, you can think about, you know, flexibility in terms of your spending and things like that. Now, obviously you can't delay things too much because if you're like, oh, I want to go on a big vacation this year, but oh, you know, inflation, maybe things will calm down and the market will roar up. So I don't have more, you know, principal I could sell down and I can do it next year. You can think about that, but then there's health concerns. You don't know how your health is going to be in the future. So there's a lot of trade-offs you have to think about and it's not easy, but you know, if, if there's any flexibility you have, like that can be helpful in certain times or like, Hey, you know what? The things to cost went up more than I expected. Maybe I'll do some part-time work for a little bit, you know, just because I enjoy it. And also to offset these costs, like there's, there's ways you can do it. Like I, I, to think that, you know, Oh, there's nothing I can do. I'm hopeless because inflation, I think that's not true. There's always some flexibility. There's always something you can do to try and offset this, you know, at some point. So I have to ask, and I know you wrote about this in a, in a prior inflation piece, but cryptocurrency often comes up in the conversation to hedge against inflation. What are your thoughts on, on buying crypto or adding crypto to your portfolio as a hedge against inflation? Well, I mean, just, I mean, isn't crypto down like 50% from its high and like inflation's the highest it's been? If you look at the data, just correlation between S&P 500 returns and CPI, and let's just say Bitcoin, that's the most popular one, and CPI. And you will find that the S&P 500 is more correlated. The returns are more correlated with CPI changes than Bitcoin, right? And that's been true. It was true a couple months ago. And I know it's more true now because Bitcoin has not gone up as inflation has gone up. So I know the correlation is getting worse. So I don't believe that. I think it's not true. I think Bitcoin is a risk asset. And for the foreseeable future, it will be a risk asset. Maybe one day it will be a currency. But as of right now, I see it as a risk asset. It is not a stable coin. It is not something that is you know, where the value is a little bit more stable. I mean, even you could even argue the US dollar is not as stable because if, you know, 8% in a year, that's, I mean, it's not, you know, 2% a year, no big deal, but 8%, that's a little bit more sizable, right? So even the stability of the measuring stick, the universal measuring stick of the dollar is not as stable as it once was. So I'm just a little skeptical of the whole crypto is an inflation hedge thing. Like everyone's saying that, but like now that we have actual inflation, like Bitcoin should just be going up and it dropped. Now it's at, I don't know, it's at 40 or something. By the time this comes out, who knows what it's going to be at, but you know, it's at 40,000 right now. And I remember it peaked at 69 and it just dropped, you know, multiple times back down, up and down around those prices. So I don't see the inflation hedge argument really working out. Well, moving on from crypto and Bitcoin and inflation here, I want to get into dollar cost averaging versus lump sum investing. And specifically, the stock market has been screaming upwards for the better part of the last 12 years, let's call it. 
And one comment that you and I often hear from investors who have cash to invest, maybe they've had a liquidity event or they've been saving and they've got cash on the sidelines. One comment we often hear is that they're going to wait for a dip in the market to put that money to work. I've touched on this on the past on this podcast, but you've got a great chapter in your new book, Just Keep Buying, that takes a deep dive into the data around this. And I'd love for you to talk through just some of the key reasons why investors probably shouldn't wait to, quote, buy the dip. Okay. So I want to clarify something just really quick, because technically, I think you just brought up two different problems, and I'll explain. And the issue, I believe, is in definitions. And I think the issue is that the term dollar cost averaging actually has two definitions, which mean different things like in the investment community. So the original term dollar cost averaging was, I think it was come up with by ben, Benjamin Graham. And he said it as like, you know, imagine just buying over time. You're just dollar cost averaging to the market. So you imagine you get paid every two weeks and you put your money in just like you would in your 401k or something, right? You're buying over time. Now, that is the first definition and that's the definition I use. The second definition when you're saying, oh, dollar cost averaging versus lump sum, that's a different definition because what that is saying is imagine you have a bunch of money right now. Let's say you sold a business or something, you have $100,000, right? And you want to put it into the market. You can either put it in all now, lump sum, or you can slowly, what I call average in in the book and just keep buying, I say, I call this averaging in. So you average into the market. The problem is people call that dollar cost averaging too. So you can see that there's a difference here in these two terms because one of them is just talking about like a general behavior. You're buying every two weeks, right? And, but what you're really doing is you're taking a lump sum payment and you're buying it immediately. It's not like in your 401k, you take that payment and you say, okay, I'm going to take this payment and spread it out over time. No, as soon as you get paid, you invest like immediately, right? That's a lump sum. That's kind of a lump sum type of investment. Even though it's a small lump sum, it's a lump sum, right? It's, it's really about the timing. Everything's about like buying. Are you buying now or are you waiting to buy? So I think that's the framework I want to think about this. I don't like using the term dollar cost averaging for lump sum because I think it confuses people because the dollar cost averaging I know is just buying over time, which I think is a great strategy. So just to kind of keep everything's about timing, right? To just get back to the like the, the core fundamental issue is should you buy now or should you wait to buy at some future point, right? And in this case, you're saying, should you wait to buy the dip? And the issue with that generally, the theoretical problem is most markets, or at least let's just use US stocks for now, but it's true even across international markets. I show this in the book. This is true even in Bitcoin and gold and all these other assets that aren't necessarily you know, income producing assets. But with US stocks, the markets generally goes up and to the right. It goes up over time. Of course, there are periods where it doesn't. There's a 10-year period. There's five-year periods where it's not up from where it was five years prior. This happens. But if it's going up and to the right on average, then anytime you wait to buy the dip, by the time that dip comes, is that price you buy at is usually higher than where you could have bought originally. And so, you know, one of the examples I like to use is on a total return basis, you know, I wrote this, I came up with this idea in early 2017, you know, this just keep buying idea. And people are like, oh, markets are too overvalued. I can't buy right now. Right. I was like, okay, let's say you had waited. You're like, I'm going to wait till there's a dip and you wait till there's a big dip too. So you wait three years from 2017 to 2020, March, 2020 to be exact. And you wait till the exact bottom, March 23rd, 2020. So not only did you wait to buy the dip, but you bought it on the lowest day. You just perfectly timed it, right? Even if you had done that on a total return basis, you would have bought at prices 7% higher than you could have bought at the beginning of 2017. And so that's what's kind of shocking. Like, remember, I'm, I'm giving the dip buyer like this insane information. Like you literally know the bottom and I'm telling you the bottom. Like no one's going to have that. Like while the market's crashing, you're going to say, oh, I think I'm going to get a deal. But then you're going to be like, oh, maybe I could wait and get a better deal. And so even someone, I bet there are people on March 23rd, 2020, when it was the actual bottom that said, you know what, I'm going to wait till it's down 40%, then I'm going to buy. But guess what? Six months later, it was at a new all-time high. So 
that's kind of the punchline, right? And so that's why you shouldn't wait to buy the dip because dips are rare and big dips, the ones that are actually the most valuable to like buy, like they're super rare. And so they don't happen that often. So while you're waiting, the most likely conclusion is you're going to wait in cash and the market's going to rise up and leave you behind, you know, and just leave you in the dust basically. And that's the most likely outcome most of the time, most of history. I cover the data in there. It's very obvious. This is true in US stocks. It's true in other equity markets too. And, you know, the only time buy the dip works is like when you know there's a big dip coming and you can time it perfectly. And like, who knows? Like no one knows that, you know, could anyone have predicted, you know, March, 2020 COVID? No. And anyone who says so like, yeah, I knew like, no, no one knew that. You know, maybe you could have known it by January, February as you're like studying the pandemic data or the, yeah, the data that was coming out. You could have been like, oh my gosh, it's going to be worse than we think. Like those people might've been able to do it, but like in, you know, September, 2019, could someone predict that? No, absolutely no way. Like the, the virus didn't exist yet. So that's kind of my counter to people trying to buy the dip because it's just not a, it's not a productive strategy. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I always like to, to bring back to the surface, I had mentioned that the, the market's been screaming upwards for the better part of the last 12 years, but it hasn't been a, a straight line up, right? There's been a lot that's happened in those 12 years, ups and downs in the market. The most recent, obviously the COVID crash in March of 2020, but there was dozens of events prior to that where the market was down. So it wasn't just a straight line up where it's like, gosh, the market's done nothing but gone up for 12 years. And I'm really spooked by valuations. No, we, like we've, we've experienced a lot in the markets over that 12 year time period. Yeah, I agree. And I think, yeah, the whole thing about evaluations, like, yeah, valuations are high, but like yields are low. I mean, don't get me wrong. Yields have been going up recently, but my hot take is that I'm never going to see the 10 year above 5% the rest of my life. I think yields are dead forever. Uh, that's my take. I could be wrong and maybe I'll be wrong and I'll eat these words later, but you know, 10 years is really half that right now or something like that. But I don't think it ever gets back to 5%. I think that that world is done. I mean, with everything, just there's negative yields almost everywhere. There's just no return on that anymore. Given that, if you if you believe that, then you're like, okay, well, yields are dead. So given yields are dead, like stock prices kind of have to rise. Well, I know you're a data guy and you do a lot of research. Like what led you to make that prediction? And I know it's a prediction. We don't know the future, yeah, but like, what, what what's led you to feel that way? I mean, there was this, this chart I saw, which shows like interest rates going back to like the 1600s or something and the average rate of interest charged across you know all these different things. And of course, this data is not perfect. I mean, they're trying to get data across hundreds of years and put it together and come up with a story. And you look and there's been a, basically a global decline in interest rates over to the average interest rate over time. And I think the story here, and here's my take on it, and I don't think it's completely right, but I think there's some piece of this is accurate, is we've kind of de-risked a lot of the world. Now, what do I mean by that? Like, of course there, there are exceptions to this, but like, you know, think about it in 1800, like, like what one third of children died or half of children died before age five. I don't know what it is. It's a high number, like child mortality, childhood mortality was large, right? You making it to, you know, age five was like almost a miracle. I think it was like half of children died until the modern era. Right. And now that's not necessarily true anymore. This is even true, like across the world, even in Africa or other developing areas, like these places are having their children survive a lot longer. And not only that, but like people are living a lot longer too. So like old people as a class of people like didn't exist 300 years ago. I mean, there were some old people, but it was very rare. I think if you look in the UK, I think in like 1850, only one in four people made it to like age 70 or something like that. It was some low number. Now it's like 90% of people make it to age 70. So old people are invented basically as a, as a result of, I mean, as a class, not just like individuals. I mean, like literally they're like a cohort now because of, you know, medical technology, a bunch of stuff that's happened. And so think about what that does for, think about how you discount the future, right? Imagine if you're 30 and you know, you're going to live to 90 versus if you're 30, you know, you're going to live to 60, right? You're going to change, you know, if the future is promised, more promised, 
the interest rate should go down, right? What is an interest rate? Think about it. It's a measure of risk, right? So if you think about like, oh, I'm going to be dead in two years, like I'm going to charge you more to, to borrow my money, right? But oh, I'm going to be dead in 30 years, I'm going to charge you a little bit less, right? If the, the more the future is promised, the less you're going to charge. So I think this is a de-riskification. And so as risk goes lower, then, you know, rates should go lower. I mean, the yields you're going to earn, right? And so, you know, like generally across the planet, there's not people in mass starvation, things like that. Things like that are kind of going away. Like people are living better lives. Of course, there are exceptions. There's stuff going on in China right now, but that's that's not done by the market. That's done by a, you know, a regime. And I don't want to get into all that right now, but I'm just saying like generally these types of things aren't happening. I like, think most people's lives, I think on across the board are getting better. There are co- there are certain sectors that are not. There's certain places and certain people are not doing as well as they were in prior years, but like the bulk of humanity I think is better now than it was 30, 40 years ago. And I think that's why rates are going lower. So I don't think it's the perfect so I don't think it's the perfect answer, but I think there that's a part of the answer. Yeah. No, I, I really appreciate you sharing that with us and expanding. So back to buying the dip here, you know, let's let's all agree that waiting to buy the dip is likely not a prudent investment decision. It it'd be really challenging to do and and have success with. We will go through another recession. Like we will see another 30 to 50% drop in the stock market. And when we do, when the world feels like it's ending, it's not always just that simple to just hit the buy button like the textbooks tell us to. So talk to us about your approach to buying during these market crashes, right? Like, again, we're not trying to time it, but we're in this catastrophic event here and maybe we do have money to, to put to work or we're actively investing, you know, on a, on a monthly time period here. Talk to us about your approach to, to investing during these market crashes. Yeah. So I'm going to try and say this as well as I can, but I think, you know, so in my book, just keep buying chapter 17 is my favorite chapter and it discusses this, how to buy during a crisis. And so it's going to do a much better job than I'm about to do, but I'm going to try and explain it. And basically, so remember there's a difference between waiting to buy the dip and expectation of a dip and conditional, oh, you're in a dip. Like once you're in a dip, if you happen to have cash, because like, let's say you, let's say you close on a business, hypothetical, you sell your business at the end of, let's say, February 2020. Just by chance, it closed, right? You get all that cash in, mar- you know, market's collapsing, everything. This dip happens. It's like now March 2020. You realize there's a dip. Then yes, conditional on you being in a dip with cash, you should buy the dip. But you shouldn't hold cash in expectation of a dip. That's the difference right here. But let's say you're in the dip. How do you reframe it? And I came up with this, this simple, I mean, this is all just simple mathematics in the sense of every percentage decline requires a larger percentage gain to get back to even. So let's just do some quick math, right? If you're at 100, let's say you have a stock that's $100 and it drops to 50, that's a 50% decline, right? But for that 50 to go back to recover, back to 100, you need a 100% gain. 50 needs to double. It needs to go up 100% to get back to 100, right? So that's how you can, just from that, you're like, oh, there's a bigger percentage gain to get back to even. So what I was thinking about in March, 2020, at the time, I think the stock market was down like 30, 33%, something like that. So I said, hey, if the market's down 33%, so let's say let's say it started the price was 100, now it's down to 66, to get back to 100, it has to go up by like 33, which is roughly 50%. So a 33% drop requires a 50% gain to get back to even. So I asked I asked Twitter a question for Intuit. I said, hey, you know, the market's down right now about 33%. How long do you guys think until we recover, until we hit a new all-time high, right? And I just, you know, I said like less than a year, one to two years, two to three years, more than three years. So I just kind of threw those out there. I thought there were decent options. But I don't know what your answer is, but let's just think about try and put yourself in March 2020. At the time, I thought it was going to take probably two years to recover, like one to two at least. So if we can back out what your expected return is then, right? If you know, okay, we're down 33%. To get back to even, we need to go up 50%. 
That means if you think the market's going to take one year to recover, your expected return of buying in that moment is 50%, right? Because let's say you bought and then one year later, it's back to its old price. You just got a 50% return. That's like mathematically guaranteed. If you're like, oh, it's going to take two years, then you know I'm just going to do a linear extrapolation of this. Just take the 50, divide by two, that's 25%. I mean, it's not really that because if you're doing compounding, when you multiply, it's like probably 23% is a little bit lower. So like 23% times 23%. You know, 1.23 times 1.23 is probably 1.5 or something like that. So you can you you get my point though, right? Just take the number, divide by the number of years you think it's going to take to recover, and that's how you back out your expected return. So even if you think, oh, it's going to take five years to recover, that's still like roughly a 10%. I mean, it's probably 8% with the compounding, but that's roughly a 10% expected return. And like, who doesn't want 10%? So like if it's March 23rd, 2020, and you're like, okay, I think the market will be recovered within five years. That seems reasonable, like from this type of pandemic then you should back up the truck and buy. I mean, a 10% return, who doesn't want that, right? So you can do that with any size crash, right? And the deeper the crash, the better the returns look on coming to the recovery, right? And what really happened, so everyone's like, okay, well, you talked about this 50%. What really happened? Well, within six months, we were back at a new all-time high. So the actual annualized return you would have gotten was over 100%. So literally one of the greatest, anyone who bought March 23rd, 2020 had one of the greatest returns they're going to ever see in their life, you know? Like that one year return is insane. I was like looking at the data. I was like, I don't think we'll ever see better one year returns the rest of our lives possibly. You know, like the the best ones I can find before that were 1930. Like in a one year period was like 1930s, right? Where people like if you bought in like June 32, the bottom of Great Depression, that one year returns better. But I don't think there are many others that beat that. So there's something to keep in mind. So that that's the framework I use. Like, hey, we're down this much. Okay, let's try and make a, a good educated guess about how long the recovery is going to take. Okay. So how much do we need to gain? And we need to gain 50%. Oh, it's going to take, you know, three years. Okay, 50 over three, that's your expected return. And who doesn't want a, you know, seven, you know, 15, 16% return on their money? That's a huge return in this environment. It's obvious. So that's kind of how I think about it. And you're like, well, Nick, what if it takes longer than three years? What if it takes 10 years? Well, then yeah, then you only got a 5% return and that sucks, but still 5% is better than nothing, right? Where else are you going to get 5%? You're going to go put it in bonds? Like, like there's no argument out of this. Like there's no argument that can like make anything make sense. Like your only choice was to really buy. Like if you're if you're rational and you want to grow your wealth, you know. So, well, I I just love how it puts the investor in control of some things that may feel out of control. Of course, like we don't know the future, but again, like during these time periods, during these catastrophic time periods, it feels like the world's ending. In hindsight, it looks like, oh yeah, it makes sense. Like we recovered quickly and we came out of COVID fairly easily here. But when it was actually happening, it doesn't feel that way. And it's hard to actually go and put that money to work, even though we know that that's probably what we should do. So I, I just loves it, love that it gives investors control over something that they may not feel like they have control over. They can make an educated decision or an educated opinion about what might happen. And I just love the the optimism of it, of it as well. Like instead of thinking like, oh my God, the, you know, everything's going to go to zero here. The the world's going to end. It's like, let, let's reframe the upside is what you call it. So I really, really like that. And again, like we can use history as a guide here. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but on average, it takes, I think, two, three, four years for markets to recover. And so to your point, even if we said, okay, well, what if it takes five years? It's still a, an 8% annual rate of return here if yeah, we put our money to work yep. today. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that's the thing is just to, when you're doing this stuff, like rethink it and like, and you're like, oh, what if it goes to zero? Well, like your investment portfolio is not going to matter. Right. Like your investment portfolio needs to include, you know, canned goods and guns and who knows what else, right? Like it's not important. Like it's funny because the econ- the economic effects of a crash are far more important than the, than what happens to your portfolio, but no one 
thinks about that, right? The real re- reason the, the Great Recession in 08 was so bad wasn't because, oh, market went, went down 50%. No, it's because all these people lost their jobs and companies went under. That's why it's bad, right? And like other people lost their jobs and people, there was all this economic activity that stopped. Like the thing about it, it went down 50%, you know, into March 08. And then in, it, it kind of j- bounced back out of that. Like within, I think, what didn't it start in like what, September 08? Within six months, we hit the bottom and then we're out of it. Like six months is not that long. I mean, what happened in 2020 was even more of a cakewalk, right? From February 19th to the bottom, March 23rd, like a month. You know, it's like we went from like a top to a bottom and then back to a top within six months. It's literally the easiest crash. I mean, it was, trust me, it wasn't easy seeing your portfolio drop 10% in a day. But if I have to pick, like, that's the easiest crash out there. Like, you know, one month of pain and then six months later, it's over. Like, what? like that's unheard of in US history, like that type of that big of a crash that quickly and then that big of a recovery that quickly. Right. Well, that segues nicely into my next question, which is what about markets that don't recover quickly from market crashes? You know, sure, we, we've got these market crashes in recent history here, 08, 09 and, and March of 2020. But sometimes when we talk about these things, Japan is often brought into the conversation where the stock market was below its December 1989 high for the last 30 years. It's done nothing for 30 years. Greece has had similar struggles since 08, 09. So what about these markets that don't recover quickly? What, what if there is a crash here in the US that does not recover, you know, in 18 months or three years or even five years? Yeah. So, I mean, the US has had multiple times where it wasn't higher than 10 years after a crash. I mean, even if you adjust for inflation and include dividends, I think there's only a couple, maybe three or four, where they had like a 10-year period where like 2000 to 2013 is one of those periods. I think, you know, 1930s, it took like eight years. I mean, it was, there are times where this happens, but yeah, about those markets that don't recover as often, this is why we diversify, right? This is why I don't think people should only own US stocks, right? Imagine a Russian investor beginning of 2022, you know, in one month, they saw the market decline by 80%. You know, that's catastrophic. In one month, like even the Great Depression, which was a 90% decline, it took from September 29 to the summer of 32 to get there. So don't get me wrong, that's still terrible. And it's like destroys you mentally. But in one month, that just like it's all unheard of. It's almost like like it just fundamentally changes everything you believe in, you know, within the course of a month. So what do I say? It's like, you have to be diversified, you have to have own other assets, you know, and I've never seen a global crash, and then no recovery across a global scale. Now we may have that one day. But if we do, once again, your investment portfolio is probably not the issue. You know, Great Depression affected everyone. So you would have been screwed because it was so bad everywhere. But what do you do? You know, you can prepare, you can try and take, you know, it doesn't matter. I think the quote is, doesn't matter how seaworthy your boat is in a typhoon, right? You can try and make every preparation, all this and that. But if you come through a typhoon, it's going to be terrible either way. You're like, oh, I was hundred percent bonds. Okay. Your portfolio didn't drop as much, but like now you can't find a job. And so you have to just sell your bonds. Like it, it's better to have some wealth and, but like you can't live for the exceptions. You can't invest based on the one in 100 year event. If you did that, you would never, it would be very difficult to build wealth. You know, so what I say to people is like, okay, first be diversified. Secondly, I think a lot of these things are snapshot judgments. What I mean by that, if you were a Japanese businessman who sold their business in late 1989, had cash, and then went 100% into the Japanese stock market, which at the time was the most highest, you know, cape ratio market ever. So let's say you did 100% in the Japanese stock market. Yes, you got screwed very badly. You were had made the worst investment decision probably in human history. However, if you've been buying over time in Japan, I show this in the book in chapter 17, just say you invested, I said a dollar a day, whatever. I just, I make that up. I'm just trying to get some, some sort of, you know, dollar cost averaging going on. You invest a dollar a day from 1980 through it. 
there are going to be periods, even with the crash, where you're, yeah, there's going to be periods where you're below your cost basis, where you're underwater, and there'll be periods where you're above it. And it and it's not as bad. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not great. If you were just a 100% Japanese investor, just dollar cost averaging over time, it's not great for you because you weren't diversified. But it's not as, oh, I had a 30-year period where I was underwater. Like That didn't happen unless you put all of it in once and you never bought again. So for people who are accumulating assets over time, it's not as much of an issue. One of the quotes I've seen you reference a number of times is from Jeremy Siegel. And I'd love to end here and just hear just some of your thoughts on, on this quote, which is fear has a greater grasp on human action than does the impressive weight of historical evidence. Can you share your thoughts on this quote and, and why you've used it in several places? Yeah, I think it's easy to be scared, you know, when you see headlines, and you see stuff like this. But if you actually look through history, there's always going to be some sort of headline or something to be there's always a reason to be afraid, right? And I think what my colleague and boss Michael Batnick likes to say is like, you know, there are many reasons to sell. There's always going to be an excuse for you to get out of the market every time. Oh, right now it's World War Three in Russia. And maybe that, that's a valid concern. Maybe that is going to cause tons of chaos. But, you know, a year before it was something else. And the year before it was something else. And there's always something going on that could cause problems, right? And so I try to say like, why am I so optimistic? Because the record of history, at least over the last few hundred years, is a positive, you know, upward to the right slope across almost every measure we can find. So, For me, it's just about, you know, grounding myself in that and like remembering like evidence matters a lot. You know, people are afraid of, for example, flying on airplanes. You know, like, do you realize that you're more likely to die in a car than an airplane? It's not even close, like the numbers. They're not even close. So don't get me wrong. Airplanes can be scary. I get that. But at the same time, like the data shows like flying in an airplane is far, 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 far safer than flying in a car. Or I'm sorry, than driving in a car. (laughs) If you're flying in a car, then it's a whole separate question. But you get my point, right? And so I think when you just look at data, it's a great way to kind of philosophical way of looking at the world that that I enjoy. Yeah. I probably shared it here on the podcast before, but my dad is a retired airline pilot. He's been flying since he was 18 years old. And I grew up with this weird fear of flying. So I, I heard those statistics over and over and over again in my household. Wrapping us up here, you know, we, we already referenced a few times your new book, Just Keep Buying. I'm giving away 15 copies to stay wealthy listeners, as I mentioned in the intro to this whole conversation today. But just take a quick moment, tell us a little bit about the book, what drove you to write it? How is the writing process? Are you ready to write your next one? Where can people find it? Just love to hear a little bit more about it. Yeah, so you can find the book on Amazon. And the reason I really wrote it was because of COVID in some ways. So, you know, COVID first hit March 2020. I was in New York City saw the big first wave, then, uh, you know, the curve flattened. I was like, oh my gosh, guys, we did it. We flattened the curve. Like it's over foolish, obviously. And then, you know, Memorial day happened. And then the rest of the United States got it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is dreadful. Like, oh, this is terrible. But I'm like, and then that the curve came down. I was like, okay, now we flattened the curve. I just, it had to hit you New York then it had to hit, hit everywhere else in the U S. So we're good now. Right. Very obvious. Right. So I was still very optimistic. Then, you know, the first variant in December 2020, that's when cases went through the roof relative to that time. I've never seen so many cases. I'm like, this is crazy, right? And then I got super, super pessimistic. And I was like, this is going to last forever. And I was like, I have to use this time. Like, I have four years of material now I've written on. I just need to organize it into like a general, all purpose, personal finance and investing guide where I'm just answering questions and trying to find the truth, right? Like, there's a lot of things out there we're told, hey, you know, you're not saving enough for retirement or debt's always bad or you should max out your 401k or you should buy the dip, right? There's all these different things we're told, I think, through the media and in the culture where I'm like, is that actually true though? And so I just questioned a lot of these things and I analyze it with data and I go to show that a lot of these things that we used to believe are just not true. I mean, the data doesn't support it, you know? And so that's kind of why I wrote the book as a way to kind of help people and like say, Hey, look, here's what the data shows. Like data is not everything. I know behavior matters. I'm not going to sit here and say it doesn't, but at the same time, like I wanted to highlight like 
how much like this stuff can help people because I think a lot of the messages we get are not based on, you know, actual facts and figures. It's just based on what people believe. Oh, that sounds right. You know, it's like the earth's obviously at the center of the universe, right? You think that that was believed for so long by humans. And then someone comes along and says, no, like based on this, it's not. And obviously people are not okay hearing that, but that's kind of what I'm trying to do here in personal finance and investing is like a lot of these things we talk about, they may sound like they're right, but when you actually dig into it, you, you know, you can't prove those things. I love it. The book was fantastic. I appreciate you sending me a copy. I've been following your your work for a long time at your blog of Dollars and Data, which we'll link to in the show notes, as well as the book. The show notes can be found by going to youstaywealthy.com forward slash 150. Nick, I just want to say thank you, number one, for all you do for this profession, all the writing you've done over the years, everything that, that you've given us. Thank you for joining me on the show today and congrats on the on the big book launch. And yeah, I, I appreciate it and hope to have you on again soon. I appreciate it, Taylor. Thank you for that. I really appreciate the kind words and just just trying to help people, you know. And I enjoy it because, like, I like helping people, like doing this stuff, and it's fun for me. I I, I love doing. It. I did it for years, for you know, without getting paid or anything, just because I love it. I'm gonna keep loving it, right? It's one of those things where you know, if you're into this stuff, that's why you're listening to podcasts, you're reading articles because it's fun. It's like, wow, there's like all this stuff out there. It's very difficult to understand, but it's fun to look at. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This podcast is not engaged in rendering legal, financial, or other professional services.